3: Welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy. This week, we've got a midweek buffet of topics for you. We'll be catching up with ex-Haas and Mercedes strategist Mike Caulfield to chat strategy and F1 news and to look forward to Monaco. We'll also discover with Antonio Rankin what's happening with the latest F1 series, the F1 Academy. Also, Matt will be here. He's back, which means it's back to being grown up. Sunday's show was very silly indeed. But the the show before that with Kyle got some really good feedback. Juan Portela says, really enjoyed the reaction chat show with only one guest. Nice variety from the usual format. Great one-on-one energy with the back and forth. Don't be afraid to sprinkle these in. We won't be. It is one of our aims for this season. There's a a busy WhatsApp chat that we have. If someone comes into that with a specific topic or a point, I'm going to try and grab them be a bit more versatile, and try and bring you interesting and sometimes a little bit more time-relevant content. But we're still an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So, as promised, we are joined by uh, someone who has been at the helm on the pit wall, in the war room of Haas and Mercedes. We've got Mike Caulfield joining us. Hey, Mike. I'm um, Good to be back. And uh, as I've also said, Matt Trumpets is here because we couldn't be trusted without adult supervision.
2: That's not my fault, but I'm just going to say the word pontoons and we'll go from there.
3: Why it's definitely not your fault. It was specifically Alex and Christian's fault. But never mind. <laughs> uh, we are going to look at the specific challenges uh, around the Monaco Grand Prix. But Mike, because we always go to you specifically for strategy stuff, I want to sort of dive in and get your opinions on some more general Formula One stuff as well, if that's OK.
0: Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, no, um, Hope, I hope I can g- g- offer a good insight on other things apart from strategy.
3: The problem is with experts, I'll ask you something random like engines, which I'm going to later. And I, your reaction will be, well, I'm not specifically an expert at that. Therefore, I don't want to dive into it. But don't don't be afraid. It's not Sky. We can just wildly speculate. And if we get emails that point out that you're wrong, we just quietly shuffle them to the, the trash pile.
0: That sounds good to me. Good. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm wrong about most things anyway, so that's that's fine.
3: Okay, well, I'm correct about this. I tweeted this earlier. I said, F1 cars, F1, the, the organisation, makes the F1 cars slower. Engineers make the car faster. And that's the game. That's always been the game. Uh, but that seems to have been abandoned in the last few regulation sets. So what I'm hoping is that the 2026 regulations are just a huge nerf, that they tear big chunks of the wing away, they spec... Huge chunks of the aero in the car, they really slow them down, slim them down, get the classic tracks working again, and of course, reintroduce uh, groove tyres. Please explain in detail why I'm correct about all those things.
0: I mean, I'm I'm partly on your side. I I do hope it's it's a case where that does happen. I think the main one which they need to really address, which they probably are doing with the removal of some of the um, PU components, is reducing that um, weight of the cars, what they've got to so already, if you can reduce that packaging of the of the PU and make the cars significantly lighter, then you can already start and go back to what the cars need to be, which is just smaller in size in general. And and hopefully that then, obviously, with a less kind of footprint in terms of the floor, you start getting less aero, which then starts making them less fast, but then technically more competitive so i wasn't
3: i wasn't thinking about that the fact that the cars are bigger just gives you more space to play with with the aero and and well and
0: especially in in today's format where a lot of the aero comes from the floor so the bigger the floor the the more effect you're going to have from it
2: Uh, well uh, you're sort of asking for different things if you want the cars to be slower the easiest way to make them slower is make them heavier (laughs) yeah if you make them lighter, then they go faster, even with less less arrow.
3: Um and, and but, I hang on, let Mike argue that because he pulled a face. It's okay. I like it's, it when Matt's no, wrong.
0: No, I, I I agree no, I agree in a in a sense, obviously heavier cars are slower, but it's I think it's it is two different aspects of it, isn't it? It's it's a case of we want the cars to be like more twitchy. So obviously like we everyone harps back to the days where like you are seeing the kind of center and prost like fighting the steering wheel, the cars a little bit on edge. From that respect, um so and that comes obviously with less aero, but the cars were slower then, but they look quicker on TV. And, and and I think that's the aspect of it. And the main thing from my side of things is where you like look at your Baku races and you, your street circuits. I know you want to go away from them anyway, which I'm also in agreement with, <laughs> but with the street circuits, with the size of the cars they are now, you, you can't get proper racing on them. So make the cars smaller and then you will get proper racing, and then also make the car slower you'll get decent racing as well but without making them heavy because at the moment i mean i've spoken to a couple of drivers who've said that basically the cars are so heavy now they can feel the car going about 3 seconds before it actually goes into a spin but there's nothing they can oh, no. do about it and because it's just it's just the inertia of it which kind of forces it off which is too, due to the weight of the cars these days
2: yeah, I think with fuel they're actually heavier than Formula E cars at the start of the race right now, and that's just a place no one wants to be. I think there is a limit unfortunately to like how much shorter they can make them because of the current regulations reliance on um on on it's not ground effect, but on using the floor to be the major generator of downforce. So so there's a limit to the shrinking, but the rumors that i have heard are that they will try to make them shorter and if anything else at least not gain any weight um but the interesting thing that i'm hearing about a lot is active arrow. have you heard anything about this and do you have an opinion on it
0: i mean yeah i think i've heard the same kind of rumors and i'm not sure there's a little couple of different like conflicting ones i've heard about what they actually mean about it in terms of the active arrow. um i mean it's it's one of those ones where you add more complexity to the cars (laughs) it's just going to make them again more i think it's going to make them more difficult to race it's so you're going to make them kind of more stable because you have that active aero you kind of can tweak it around the circuits and then it favor the big teams who've got the resources to put into it so personally i think you look we should be looking at simplifying it and back to your original point really but you simplify the regs as much as possible in that sense, and then give the engineers the opportunity to try and find how they can find the speed back. But when you start opening up things like active aero and control systems and that bit, you're you literally you're gonna take mm. away aspects of racing from it because you'll just make it more and more the cars more and more optimized almost for the, for the circuits, which means they're less likely to make mistakes. They're less likely to kind of be in a position where they're going to be able to be overtaken, which makes racing ultimately worse.
3: Yeah, what's the what's the problem that active aero is is solving is is only to make the cars quicker, so it would solve a lap time issue. And if they were competing against other series, that would be one thing. But they're they're not; they're competing against each other. So in a way, it really doesn't matter how ultimately fast you know the cars are. And if you let them just loose forever, they would just get faster and faster. I would want to push back on what Matt said about you can't make it smaller. I, th- I think there's a misconception that Formula One is specifically like an innovator in all areas of engineering and 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 motoring. Obviously, it is a bit of a you know a, a leader in in terms of motorsport engineering, but it does feel like if you handed that over to say the defence industry and pretended that it was a, a weapon and bunged money at the right MP. I think technologically it is possible to achieve everything they want to achieve and still shrink the cars down. But F1 engineers have quite a limited scope, limited budget and limited time to work with, you know, uh, between regulation sets. So I I don't know, Mike, if there's the willpower to make these cars smaller, I think you can do it. Is there a will to do it?
0: I mean, that's, that's a difficult question, isn't it? I mean... I, I the thing is, uh, I've heard it mentioned a lot in terms of kind of forums like this and Twitter yeah. and and just having general chats in the paddock about it. But then you never hear it mentioned by people like F one or the That's kind the of one. Yeah. or the designers or anything. So they obviously, I I don't know the full reasons behind why they go that one. I think currently, because of the size of the engines or sorry the power units at the moment, this is what's preventing them from being smaller than they are. They're the ones which have caused a significant increase. It's not just the floor eggs, it's the um and the aero regs. It's the, the PUs are, are huge compared to what they were when it was just the the V8 and uh, with all the components who are adding in there. So I think that's the kind of potential. And then the other thing which is also added, which is potentially why it's not discussed, is the basically the crash structures around it. So obviously the more space you put around the driver, the safer the driver is. So obviously making the car smaller, it makes that aspect where there's potentially less um, less protection for the driver. So that's, I think, probably one of the main reasons why they don't look at it, Okay, well,
3: well, you're lucky. You're lucky that you're here, because I've solved that one already. If you make the cars so slow that when you crash, it's the consequences are less. Do you know what? That sounds stupid, but there must come a point where, yeah, if you if you did, say, just make all motorsport half as fast and just don't tell anyone, but just zoom in a bit with the cameras, people might not might not notice it's all about perceptions isn't it so like when you when i looked back um because of an excellent question from one of our listeners looked back and watched the highlights of Imola 2005 my goodness does Imola look like a completely different track compared to now and i think that's one of my main motivations as a aging f1 fan is i would like hungaro ring back i would like barcelona to be properly back as the the forces they once were matt
2: well yeah and and i think If we go back to, say, the 2017 regs, which made the cars significantly faster, those were almost entirely a response to a couple of early races where the speed of the Formula One cars was barely better than that of the Formula Two cars. Everyone freaked out. And as a result, we got this uh, ridiculous... Regulation set that that actually made everything overtaking and all of that so much worse and so much more difficult than it was prior to that Formula One has sort of set itself out as being the fastest around the twisty bits of any series, so they have to satisfy that, but you're correct if you show someone a camera picture, they're not going to pick up on multiple seconds a lap unless you tell them the lap times and say, Wow, that was a lot slower than last year, herp,
3: yeah, yeah. Well, whatever. Let's pick Mike Caulfield's brains about his area of expertise, strategy. Now, some people who are negative about Monaco, not me, uh, might think that there was limited strategy at Monaco compared to other tracks. Would they be correct?
0: Yes basically oh. <laughs> um yeah i mean good the no, second I mean, question it's 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 a quite a frustrating one for a strategist in in terms of monaco because it can be it's one of the i'd say easy in inverted commerce in terms of like um Choosing strategy, you have to do a one-stop. There's no debate about that. So it's a one-stop race. You, you don't worry. Even if your tyres are falling off a cliff, you're still not going to get overtaken because likely the cars behind are also going to be struggling. So you just have to make that one-stop work. So in that respect, it's it's about track position. The difficult thing which comes into strategy at Monaco is obviously your safety car pit stops and your safety car decisions um, and your window around that. And that's where like the... It's it's very difficult because in in normal situations you take a safety car. All right, I'm going to lose three four positions. Um, that's fine. Um, I'll get them back when they stop, and, and or I'll be able to overtake them because I'm on fresh tyres. Monaco, if those cars don't stop, you're going to be stuck behind it. Um, you also have the aspect of well, if they're really much slower than you, they're just going to force you back, and then you're going to potentially lose positions out against people who haven't stopped. So there's lots of kind of nerve-wracking decisions around that one. Um, there's obviously a chance of red flags. So do you then play the the red flag card and go, right, I'll just try and stay out as long as possible, hope that there's a red flag, and I've got 18 cars already stopped who've fallen behind me. The red flag comes out with the rules they have. I can now change my tires. Oh, all yeah. done, yeah. I'm, sat, I'm, sat, I'm sat up there. Um. So, yeah, if you've, if you've qualified down the field, that's potentially an aspect you go for. But, I mean, it's not a complex kind of, right, do we do a one-stop, two-stop? Which tyre order do we do? Because generally, as well at Monaco, the, the softest tyres are pretty useless in terms of race situation, so you just go medium-hard. Um, and even if they are okay, you you kind of still just get off them as soon as possible as soon as you've got a pit-stop window and stick the hard-on And, again, it doesn't matter if you're slow because no one can overtake you. So, yeah, it's it's a frustrating one for a strategist because there's not a great deal you can do but at the same time you can also look a absolute fool um at monaco if you get it wrong so one thing that i'm just curious about from sort of a larger team perspective
2: is obviously um with the safety car and the pit stops being so critical does this put extra pressure on the on the pit crew themselves and and does the team work in extra practice because my understanding is that uh, the team and the logistics don't necessarily consider Monaco their favorite place to be.
0: Yeah, that's, no, that's correct. It's, um, I mean, so I've not been to Monaco since I quit. I was always lucky to do the, the Thursday practice Friday off Saturday, Sunday, and by, I mean, Friday off, there was no running Friday, but that also gave you that more opportunity to have a bit more, it wasn't as pressured. You could do pit stop practice on that Friday, et cetera. Whereas now obviously it's now Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like every other race, the kind of the pit confines, the timings on it are very, very closed. The pit lane's awful in terms of how tight it is. So yeah, you're very right. But trying to get your car in and out of that is 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 difficult. You obviously need track time during practice session, so you can't really give that for kind of trying to do your practice pit stops because you will potentially lose time out of there where you need to get it. So yeah, it's 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 a lot of things which are difficult about it. Um, as you saw by the the Ricardo one back in twenty 2016, yes. 2017. Um, yeah, the the garages are tiny, so usually the tires are stuck out at the far end of the garage because there's no space for them in the actual garage itself. So you've got to go see navigate trees which pop up through the actual garage themselves. And um, can, can we just and, explain
3: what happened with Ricardo, just to people who weren't around then?
0: Yeah, so basically he was um, in the 2016 race. He was leading the race. Um, Lewis had made his stop. Um, first, but Ricardo was still on quicker tyres. Came in. If he'd had a clean pit stop, would have come out in the first and won the race because that's what Monaco is. No, if if you get out at first, that was it. He turned up. There was no tyres available, or there were some tyres available, but some wrong tyres available. And <laughs> then you had your pick crew doing a bit of a Benny Hill back and forth, kind of running in and out. And he's just sat there for what seemed like a an age. Um, and and he still, even after all that, only just came up behind Lewis as well. So which was um, particularly um, demoralising for himself, <laughs> a uh, but not for me because I was working for Mercedes at the time. Oh
3: thing. yeah, yeah. But on the flip side, with with Ricardo, I think it was the following year. He then had uh, when you're talking about how hard it is to overtake, he had like he basically had a cylinder down on his engine, and he was like down like half horsepower, and still no one could overtake him. And it was so funny because everyone was going. It was a masterful drive uh, by everyone. I think it was. Just Christian Horner saying a masterful drive, you know, a broken car, but you literally just can't overtake. You didn't have to do anything particular.
0: Yeah, not really. I mean, there's the one place where someone might have a lunges down at the chicane um, out, out of the tunnel, but if you park your car in the middle of the track going into that, then you shouldn't be overtaken. So it's 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 really not that difficult. I think I'd, I'd have a good chance of keeping keep people behind <laughs> me, and I'm and I'm, I'm really not very good.
2: Uh, this walk down memory lane is making me want to ask this sort of tangential question which is is the virtual safety car the hardest thing for a strategist to deal with especially if you like you're approaching your pit stops because i can think of one uh you know one in particular where like it always seems like certain drivers gain time on certain other drivers under the virtual safety car and at least once i think mercedes threw away Oh when maybe it was under the safety car um with Vettel, but but it's it seems very difficult to calculate where a driver under the virtual safety car will be relative to a driver that's making a pit stop. So is that like an especial nightmare at a place like Monaco where you have no chance of overtaking and regaining the position?
0: Yeah, a little bit, because um so we generally have calculations on most tracks it's okay so you can kind of see where you are relative to your delta and obviously that's the big thing about the virtual safety car is everyone drives to a delta but potentially you might have some cars which are uh, driving two three seconds off and someone's at zero so you obviously try and be at zero on that delta to to gain that position the issue you have at monaco is that gps is so poor that you don't have this accurate positions really you it's kind of more of a simulated lap so what you're seeing might not be fully accurate so especially with the virtual safety car you 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 are forming that a little bit more of a risk but it is the same with the safety car as well with that potential will you will you will you won't you come out behind a car if you pit it's that same aspect in that respect um because obviously you you can race in the pit lane technically and then you can obviously race out the pit lane at Monaco because it's the safety car two lines um, at the exit of turn one. So you obviously see that dash down the straight. If one car's under the safety car delta and one car's coming out the pits, you're never quite sure until you get around turn one to see who's who's ahead, who's behind. Um, but so, yeah, but I mean, in a general race, virtual safety car is always the most difficult one purely because as well, you don't know, it might just end. So that's another thing you've got to take into account. You're never sure when the virtual safety car is going to end. So... You've got your delta there where you might come out in front of this car. But if that clears while you're in the pits, there's a chance you then won't be in front of that car. So you've potentially given away a a, a a position there. So it's those are the kind of calculations you need to do on has this car stopped or not stopped? Who's in front of me that may or may not stop? And is it disaster if I come out behind this car or will I get it back if he doesn't? So that's the kind of things where strategist would be going through in the virtual safety car scenario at least.
3: I'm a strategist for a team at the lower part of the the midfield and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start on the on the, the prime tire, not the option. I'm gonna start on the hard, say if it's hard and medium. That was a flashback, wasn't it, Matt? Um <laughs> prime and option. So I I'll, I'll take the hard tire and then I'll I'll watch everybody, all the chaos on, on turn one. I'm gonna I'll pit lap one and I'll come out and clear air. Uh, I'll, I'll make my way back towards the pack who are all fighting with each other and then when they all have to pit, I'm in front and then I park the bus and finish a cheeky fifth. See, I, I don't know, that's why. Why aren't I a strategist?
0: That would work. Well, what, so, question, why are you standing on the hard tie if you're pitting on lap one?
3: Because I then get onto shall the you soft tie. want to... I want yeah, but so get, you want to start on the soft tyre, put the hard tyre on to go to the end of the race. But doesn't the medium, won't the medium have more pace as I catch up to the back of the pack, right? Yeah, but, so it doesn't, I,
0: it, but if it doesn't last the whole race and you, it and you doesn't can, have blow to. up your tyres got a puncture or something. Then uh, okay, it, of, it's it, doesn't, it doesn't
3: have to because, oh, here I am arguing with a Merck strategy. So, uh, um, it doesn't have to because you catch up with the pack, they all pit, you come out, your tyres are nearly shot, but you literally just park the bus and just nurse them home. That's why I was thinking you catch the gap, the gap up quicker. Okay. Yeah, oh, he, he yielded. <laughs> Everyone heard that he conceded. Um, but yeah, I was just I was looking in my head for what is there a cheeky old strategy like? Why don't we see cars at Monaco just peel off lap one and get that pit stop out of the way?
0: Because I think it's it is generally the case of because of the chance of safety cars and everything, um, and also the fact is there will be guaranteed that some cars in that bottom ten will start on that hard tire but they'll run it for going long and looking for a red flag or something. So even if you do this catch up thing, you'll then be stuck behind a car who's trying to do a 50, 60 lap stint. You can't overtake him. So he's just pushing you back and back and back. And then, yeah. I mean, if you're last, yeah, to start the race anyway, then that's fine. But if you were like kind of P10, P11, it's probably not something you try in that respect. But yeah, I think the main thing about strategy in Monaco is you're trying to take advantage of safety cars it's like when um marussia got the, the point at uh, um monaco is yeah you're looking for kind of red flags you're looking for other people coming out you're just trying to put yourself in that position especially if you're like a car which doesn't normally get points or doesn't normally compete you want to do something different to everyone else because if you do the same as everyone else you're just going to finish where you start so you're trying to look at something a little bit mm. different in that respect and and Monaco is one of those races where potentially things can throw up with the kind of just cars crashing, it wouldn't normally crash, a safety car an opportune moment, red flags, etc. So that's what you'd be trying to look at that. Whereas yeah. if you've qualified in that kind of top six, you just need to kind of run a clean race as possible, because if you try and do something alternate as such, you're more likely to cost yourself more than you would kind of gain in against the cars you're around.
3: Okay, well, that's why you have two cars. So you deploy, say, uh, a younger or a junior driver to cause a, a red flag at an opportune moment. And that's it. You've won Monaco. Matt, I've thought this all through. I'm uh, disappointed the amount of pushback I'm getting.
2: Well, yeah, I can understand that. On the other hand, I just, I, you know... You know, on the other hand, the the more worn your tires are, the more likely your driver is to make a mistake, especially at a track like Monaco, and mistakes at Monaco can be race-ending, not just position losing. I do have a question for Mike, though. I I know know that we have other things to talk about, but based on your description, it seems like qualifying really is, this is the only time we have left under these regulations that where qualifying really, really matters. Who picks when to send the cars out, especially like in qualifying the first session when the timing matters a lot, not only for getting the last lap when the track is best, but you also have to worry about your driver having a good out lap in order to have the car be fast. Is that a race engineer calculation? Is the strategist have anything to say about that?
0: So it's, it's, it, this, these are usually combined decisions in terms of you'll go over like your practice data, look at kind of the tire warm up, look at the deg. For example, um, look at kind of previous years. So looking at where the track's busy, when's it most likely to be yellow flags, et cetera. And then you kind of come up with a run plan. The thing about Monaco qualifying compared to kind of other ones is because there's generally fairly little deg on the tires at Monaco because of the kind of surface that you can, you, you almost act it like a wet session, but you go out as early as possible, try and get some bank collapse in and just run. Um, so you try and be there because there's a chance of a yellow flag or something or a chance of a car, yeah, car parts but a opportunity when you're on your lap. You basically just need to be on track as much as possible. So when the track frees up, you get that opportunity. Like you said, there's traffic in there. Um, so if you're trying to like leaving it to kind of one lap at the end, um, there's a good chance that it's going to be affected by a yellow flag or a car just in the in the wrong spot or not being able to get that gap, which means you don't make the line in time. Um, so you just kind of try and spread it over that session as much as possible. And then the other aspect of it is that the track evolution is quite high as well. So you're, you're right, you need to be on track at the end, but you also need to be in that kind of position. So generally what people do at Monaco is, for qualifying at least, is that you'll do two runs in Q1, You'll try and get a banker in in Q1 and in the first run, like do a few laps, and but then get yourself out with a good like seven, eight minutes to go with before the end of the session and just kind of running and aiming to do like fast, though fast. But if you need to abort, you've still got time to kind of do it just to give yourself that best opportunity to to get that final lap in. So yeah, so it's basically race engineer and, and strategist and chief race engineer all come to kind of a decision together and asking for a friend and not
2: based on any real life events if i was to accidentally have to on purpose park my car somewhere inconvenient for the rest <laughs> of the field where would one choose
3: to do such a thing yeah what's the best place to park it mike
0: i mean you've got a few options haven't you to To be honest um it's a like turn one will be a yellow flag turn five um they're all like little runoffs. And if you maybe have to like Austin Powers it out of there, the yellow flag just keeps in that area. To oh, right. of, um... Well, hang
3: on. Do what Rosberg did while you were at the team and just reverse back out <laughs> to really make sure there's a yellow flag. And, and so that was 2016, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, no, I think was that was 13 plus, 13 or 14.
3: Oh, Mike, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare probe you, but I bet that was awkward at the team.
0: Uh, it's as awkward as many things which <laughs> over that, that kind of <laughs> period of time. I mean, there was one stage at Monaco where Lewis just seemed to be cursed uh, just in terms of um, he never seemed to win it regardless of what well, happened.
3: there was that qualifying and then there was a, another time when he was he was comfortably leading and then Mercedes did a double stack which somehow resulted in Rosberg popping out up front um, or he got held up in some way but he was absolutely furious on the radio. I'm sure this was like maybe a late yellow flag or a late safety car made the decision uh, to pit Yeah, them. that
0: was 20... 2015, maybe I can't remember which year exactly it was. Um, it was a safety car, so yeah, Lewis was leading, so it wasn't double stat. Lewis was leading and he pitted and ended up third, I think. Out of that, um, and yeah, um, there's quite a thing, a few things which went wrong at that point of time, which was kind of added to it, but yeah, it was, it was not, not obviously an, an ideal situation. That one, in fact, it was. Pretty awful. <laughs> I think that's what—that's all we're going to get
3: out of Mr. Caulfield. We—we got to wait for NDAs to expire and books to get no, no, published. And, uh... So
0: basically, I'll, I'll actually give you some a bit of a rundown on this one is. But um, so I was back at the factory for this one. Um Actually, during this safety car, we lost all communication from the track to the factory. Oh. Um. So like all all intercom went down. So we we saw nothing. The intercom came back up, and you and you just heard this kind of box box, and we were just like. We all like literally looked at each other and went, "What's happening here?" What's but obviously because we'd lost radio for about best part of forty seconds or something, we weren't sure. Like the... he might have had a puncher, he might have um, sure. caught, like so- something. Was so you couldn't just it, yell,
3: "No, no, no, no." Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, and um, and basically, again, it it, it was a, a case of because the GPS is so poor and teams become so reliant on GPS at um, Monaco, there's certain aspects where it's fine and the kind of the track maps are simulated. But basically, on the decision-maker's laptop, um, he had it set to sector mode, which basically meant that the gaps only updated every time they crossed the sector. And because the cars had caught the safety car between one of these sectors, his gap was still showing incorrectly. Whereas if you had a GPS, even though the GPS is poor, the GPS would have shown that he didn't have the gap to make that pit stop. Um, so it was a, it was an, like an incorrect in incorrect setting on his thing because, because of the GPS is being poor. He didn't want to use that, so he used sectors, but then that had the negative effect of, in terms of looking at the gaps while the safety car was out.
3: I don't know. I don't find that story complete. Matt, do you remember my story of how I accidentally allowed a uh, £30,000 drone to be shot out of the sky because I was playing 3D pinball?
2: Yeah, I do remember bi-
3: that. 3D space pinball on Windows. I reckon that's what was happening, and, and Mike just Minecraft. doesn't want to say. Because he wants to protect the fact that he's the all, all-time <laughs> 3D space pinball record holder. Um, yeah. So, look, I mean, we're trying to find interesting things about Monaco. And actually, even the strategy insight you've given us there, it in itself gives us something to to look out for. Because whilst it is pretty much a, a train and a crocodile, there's there's hope. You're, there's still hope at some point that something's going to happen. There's some kind of strategy you can pull out of the bag. Talking about safety cars. I went up and looked online what the odds are, and the bookies are normally pretty good at safety car odds. So it is overwhelmingly likely, according to most major bookies, that there will be a safety car. If you want to bet against a safety car, we're talking in the region of five to one and nine to two. So they are backing, especially you know these days where they, they you know safety first, safety car come out, red flags quite likely too. Maybe that does add a little bit of scope an interest, an intrigue for Sunday. But generally, I say to people, enjoy the qualifying. The qualifying's genuinely exciting. On Sunday, just turn the volume up, turn your expectations down, and just let F1 wash over you. And the thing is, yeah, the the secret to a happy life, said my nan, you know, (laughs) low expectations. And I think if we could get that across to people, Mike, at certain tracks, you know, there isn't... I whinge about Monaco, I know. But if we could just get across to people... That's it's not going to happen. It's like Thanksgiving. No one really wants to be with Uncle George. Yeah, but it's a tradition. We seem to do it every year. Just get drunk and enjoy yeah. it. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I mean that. That's it. Really, it's like you're not going to have 24 races, which are absolute like storming races. We've had a few poor ones. Monaco, generally, like you said, it's always it's not it's not one for the racing. It's it's Monaco is there for other reasons, and it's not the racing itself. Is it money? um well i don't think they pay anything do they
3: oh what's going on then matt let's just cancel it if they're not paying money
0: well if
2: we're talking about things to look forward to at monaco formula one will be directing the broadcast for the oh, first time this yeah. year so so that should be an improvement all by its lonesome um but this also leads me to a big question that i had which is that uh, Mercedes big update, which was supposed to debut at Imola, will now be debuting at Monaco. And I'm just curious, Mike, could you think of a worse track to bring an update to <sighs> than Monaco?
0: Simple answer, no. I mean, it's it's um it's yeah. There's obviously a good chance of crashing it. There's a good chance yeah. of um yeah. I mean, it's. It's not, a, it's clearly, it's by far, even of any of the street circuits, it's not a normal circuit. So you're not going to get any kind of normal um, information from it. So it's not going to be kind of useful to say, does this work? Does it not work? It's, it, Monica's an outlier as it is anyway. So so,
3: so the yeah, only so. reason, the only reason they can be bringing the update here and not waiting to Barcelona is because it has to be PR. It must look radically different. I'm expecting triple side pods.
0: All the sidepods, yeah. Yeah, because
3: I can't think, like, like Mike said, it's all risk, no reward. So, Matt, there's got to be a reason. It's PR, it's going to roll out, it's going to be sidepod heaven, and, oh, my expectations for this. I know Toto Wolf is, like, being a good dad and saying, everyone, calm down, you know, uh, you know we don't know how good it's going to be. It's going to be brilliant, Matt.
2: Well, I can think of in my own head a couple of plausible reasons why they might have chosen to bring it to Monaco. But I figured since Mike has worked in an actual Formula One team, (laughs) he might have a list as well. Like, why? what would prompt them to bring this update to this track and not say wait for Barcelona, which would seem to be a much better place to bring an update and and test it in uh, real-world conditions?
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean... The the only thing I can really think of because obviously it was planned for Imola, um, so last week the only thing I can really it, is why they're continuing it for this week is that it's actually it's actually incorporated a major chassis change, so th- that's that's basically the only reason it can't like so it can't they can't go they back can't to go the back, old package yeah. it's, it's 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 one or the other and it's um then that's it that's that's the main reason and or like they've either kind of yeah they've they've limited on life for the old specs anyway so but um yeah and they, they've put all their kind of resource in since know, Bahrain whenever they switched over to to the new one anyway so it's um it was a case of yeah it's that's that's all they have they don't they can't they can't go back because the uh, the two new chassis coming for this weekend okay that well, is a weekend. much
3: much better explanation than my pr they want to show off their mega side pods i reckon it's that my expectations for this update have now crashed through the floor i'm expecting nothing I was Matt, yeah. I was,
2: yeah. Well, I, I was going to say it's remarkable how Mike said exactly what I was thinking.
3: You're clever. Now, well yeah.
2: Because, because I'm, you no, win, then. of course not. Um, but, uh, but I will go on and ask then, uh, what at a track like Monaco, if you're, if you have this update coming, what are there any upsides? How would you, as, as an engineer in a Formula One team, what are you going to try and do? to be as uh to get as much out of this as possible at a track where it doesn't seem to be that possible
0: i mean i, I guess like the only the, the 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 positives if you can say it is that there really can't be many downsides on it if they think that this overall package is is better than the in than the original one then they've hopefully designed something which will work everywhere so obviously Monaco still requires a car which is strong downforce so it's potentially better in that respect it's obviously a a street circuit which is a very bumpy circuit um so potentially suspension aspects which go with this this um concept may be better as well so it's um maybe it's just a case of they think this while they can't get the like proper read of what the overall performance is relative to red bull at a normal circuit from this week and that'll be difficult to tell but they're obviously their impressions is that okay the old package was still going to be poor here anyway so this one's going to offer some upsides it's it, if anything it can't be worse and and that and i guess that's that's the kind of reason for looking at it is making sure okay if it works for monaco there's a chance for in term like at least in like clean the low speed high downforce circuits it's going to be a, a mm. decent car and especially a circuit where the suspension and the um and the aspects of monaco requires can translate to other circuits, you just can't get a proper competitive read on exactly where you stand with it. That's that's the main thing. It's
3: a shakedown, isn't it? As well. Check check, basically yeah. Check the bits don't fall off. Mike, you've been very generous with your time. um, but before we let you go, I just want to yell at Matt. Matt, we look we work hard to get ourselves in a position to have, you know, expert people on and now we've worked our way into the you know into the, the zone where we're close personal friends with Mike Caulfield. He has fancy dinners, caviars, and after-dinner drinks with Stefano Domenicali, we are tapped into the heart of F1, and you're having Twitter arguments with Mr. Caulfield on, uh, online. So start off, say, sorry, Mr. Caulfield, and then let's settle this beef.
2: Um. Okay, I will apologize <laughs> to Mr. Caulfield.
3: Unless you were right, in which case, give him hell.
2: Although, I can't remember
0: this. I have we agreed. Oh. Uh,
2: well, no, see, this is the thing. We did agree, because this all came oh, from... Boring. Do you remember Karun Chandok saying, oh, the team should run all three varieties of tires to solve the fact that F1 is no longer an exciting thing based on exactly like two and a half data points. And my initial response is, well, that's just not going to help at all. And I think we agreed on that. And then my second response is, I don't think the tires are really entirely at issue here. The fact that we've been racing on nothing but resurfaced tracks has a lot more to do with what we're seeing. But then it occurred to me like the most interesting thing we had seen was uh, people like Ocon and Magnuson and even Hamilton on hard tires at the start going very, 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 very long on these resurfaced tracks. So I thought, well, if we were going to change anything about the tire rules, give someone in the last 10 or the last five positions the option to start on the hard tire and then just not have to change it and mike disagreed with me
0: yeah and, and but we agreed on everything else um yeah but i just basically said that yeah it's it's it was great in the terms of the ocon and hulkberg thing but that's because they were looking for an opportunity if you open it up to everyone then everyone does it and it becomes a boring drs mm. train
3: and that, that's the problem, isn't it? These things equalize. You know, maybe we should just be, you know, changing the, the regulations every every few races to, to make strategists work harder. But what about the, the Karun Chanduk idea where you have to race all three? To me it always feels like, well, in that case, that means you you're not basically tire life goes out the window because you you've got to change it. Even if it's a one stop race naturally, you're just doing two stops, you don't have to think about it. Um but also it's just it is, you know, we're swallowing nails with the arrow, and to cure that, we'll swallow concrete to cover up the, the marks from swallowing nails.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, if you look back over the past, well, even going back to 2017, I think, so like when we changed the regs the first time, the most interesting, the most exciting races where you look on, I can't remember what website it is, race fans or maybe we, where they do a ranking of the race or something. And I think say, that's
3: the race, isn't it? With Ed Straw? I think that's the race.
0: Possibly, yeah. They might have changed the name since our last look, it yeah. about three years ago. Um, but like all the kind of races which people like, and it's a bit what Matt was saying is that you're looking at kind of a mix of strategies and kind of a one stop v2 stop where you've got a car on a one stop and they're being chased on by a car on two stop and it's a car on all the tyres against a car, on a, and it's that kind of anticipation towards the end of what will happen. And all the best races or the highest ranked races are where this has happened, but it's always shown over the last five, six years that these races do exist it's just for the fact that like matt said and like we kind of point out but we've started this season with oh. circuits which are always like this anyway that every season are like this it's just for the fact that Baco didn't have a it had a really opportune safety car and it didn't have any red flags this year and um and jed has always been fairly dull but the first year we had four red flags and millions vscs and it actually came a bit ridiculous with the amount of vscs in it and Monaco, you never know, not Monaco, Melbourne, but I mean Monaco. Generally, yeah. You've Melbourne. never been you've never been able to overtake at Melbourne. It's always been a one stop. And it's um so all these things we're seeing in this year's championship it basically happen every year. And it's it's what it is. Once you get onto the proper circuits, like your Barcelona, your Silverstone, later on the year, you're Austin Suzuka this is when these kind of 1v2 stop races start coming into it. And this is where you'll see this mix of strategies. And there isn't an issue with the tyres because they kind of designed well to work like that. Um, and we'll get some exciting races in that respect. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I kind of see what Matt was saying with his point of trying to catch up with um, with uh, like a no-stop race versus a one-stop race. But actually, it's, 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 it's a case of the 1v2s do work it's just it's the circuits themselves which have unfortunately led to these poor races
3: uh, glad yeah, the, i think my, yeah go on matt sorry
2: i was gonna say i think my actual real point was if we we're talking about less gimmicky solutions allowing yeah. the last five runners a chance at a zero stop is probably way less gimmicky than making all the teams run all three compounds
0: and 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 you're fully right because again if all the teams have to run all three compounds so therefore you'll like, because most races are now borderline one stop two stop or if not like you said a no stop mandating two stop races means all the teams are just going to kind of iterate to the same strategy Mm -hmm. because there's a reason because you'll start on the softest compound you're looking for the undercut so you want to get that pit stop in first you won't want to run first you might alternate that last second to last one but again you want a second stop to try and undercut another car you don't want to be run long and it's yeah it's it's just it'll actually make things worse if you try and run all three compounds excellent
3: uh mr caulfield thank you so much for your time go and follow mike at mike caulfield f1 or try and follow him around sniffing around in and, in and about the panic uh, and try and figure out what he's up to on his clandestine weekend visits to f1 races no monaco for you so you'll be watching it on the tv in your pants with us mike
0: Exactly, or maybe with a beer and a barbecue. Who knows?
3: That's, I think, that's the only <laughs> way. Just treat Monaco, um, yeah, treat Monaco like people treat the Super Bowl in America, Matt. You know, only half watching it. Have beer and crisps out, volume up, and uh, and just let it wash over you. Mike, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hope we see you back in the shed soon.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers, guys.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: With the price of just about
2: everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
3: So then you might have heard of something called the F1 Academy and it's part of Formula One's drive to help women come through the feeder series and eventually have the aim of having a woman racing in Formula One. They have expressed that this is a category designed to give more access and track time to women racing and testing, as well as an overall rounded support package. But like you, I haven't seen anything of this F1 Academy. So here to help me and Matt is Antonia Rankin. Hi, mate. Hi. Now, I haven't just called up the nearest woman to ask about <laughs> F1 Academy. Hey, Rankin, you're a lady. Tell me about F1. Now, to defend myself, you have been TikToking about this.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic at the moment because obviously F1 Academy has been unleashed to the public, but it also hasn't. And I think a lot of people don't really know very much about it at all. So I'm hoping through conversation and some light joking we can hopefully encourage more people to kind of understand it a bit more.
3: And Matt, this is something that's kind of been bubbling under the surface. I think to, to start off, to frame all of this, we've been hoping for something to be done. I mean, for the last decade, we've been having this conversation. This is at least a very positive move. It's something. They've done something.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, and this really comes on the heels of the W series Demise and it wasn't to my understanding, based on you know casual reading of Twitter, uh, wasn't really planned to start this season. It was more planned to start next season, which is one of the reasons you talked about visibility. We haven't seen as much of it, is, is a lot of
3: the engineering for the broadcast and stuff like that was still taking place. So the question that people will be asking, Antonia, is isn't this just W series or or shouldn't have W series already have been doing what F1 Academy is doing?
1: Yes and no. I think F1 Academy specifically is designed to be a feeder series into formulas three and two. And it's whole idea is that it's giving women the opportunity to showcase their abilities to gain experience in a competitive car where they can really show off what they can do, challenge for race wins, and also make connections with existing teams in Formula 2 and Formula 3 that they can then exploit to further their careers in the future. Um, Obviously, W Series was an early step in that direction. Um, But in my opinion, F1 Academy appears to just be a kind of more streamlined version of that. But I mean, going back to what Matt said, I will say it feels at the moment like a half step has been made. And I obviously don't know what's coming up next year. Hopefully there'll be some broadcasting where we can all actually watch these races. But these races are commentated. They are filmed. There are highlights shows. And yet we're still not seeing it on our TV screens, which I think is a really, really great shame because it would have been really nice to see the series hit the ground running.
2: Well, I, I think I have some good news for you there, because I believe if I've understood the video I watched properly, that they will, they will be joining in earnest the Formula One calendar next season. But it, you mentioned W Series and this series. It does feel like a half-step, because I think it was originally intended for a slightly different audience of drivers than W Series. W Series used, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, a modified F3 car. This is a modified F4 car from Tattoos with an inline um, inline four-cylinder turbocharged engine makes around 170 horsepower. But what's different about it to the standard F4 is that it features fully adjustable front and rear suspension. So it's more of a learning series. And the age limit is 16 to 25. So this is this is a learning series for drivers to learn how to set up cars at different tracks and to prepare them to race uh, faster, more powerful cars.
1: Yeah, I um on the topic of the cars, so they're racing in a Tatus Formula Four um, T421 chassis, which is the same chassis that was used in W Series. However, oh. this time they've got yeah. a different engine. So you know, Pirelli tires, um, Tatus chassis, but the engine is Autotechnica. It's an inline four, turbocharged, one point four liter. Um, I think 0 to 100 is 3.6 seconds, 100 kilometers an hour. Um, And horsepower difference to W Series is about 100 horsepower difference. It's 100 less. So it is slightly less powerful. So yeah, that goes back to the idea of it being a learning series. Um, And I guess the main difference that we can identify between W Series and F1 Academy is this is very much a development academy. Mm. I mean, you know, it's in the name. It's for drivers to develop their talents, to develop their abilities.
3: Whereas W Series was almost an entity in its own right. And it was almost like a, a, a dead end. Well, it proved to be a dead end in the end, because if Jamie Chadwick can just keep winning it without really getting a, an opportunity to progress, then it has it, it kind of strayed into that area, Matt, where we were saying, OK, is this about encouraging women in motorsport or is this about... Segregating women off into their own championship, and I think we hoped that it wouldn't be the the segregation route route uh, for for women's motorsport. Um, whereas whereas this is is much more embedded into the the feeder stream of F one. But I, I just kind of want to pay tribute to W series for taking a step forward and doing it at least because they showed. Look, they put what twenty women on the grid. Oh, can you believe it? It wasn't a disaster. There was actual racing and there was good racing. There was enjoyable racing.
2: Well, yeah, and I would even take minor exception. I mean, yes, uh, Chadwick didn't progress into F3 or F2, but she is now racing in Indy Lights, So it's not like she came away with no opportunity uh, relative to her domination of that championship. But the good news, and I think you make this point very well, is that this series, F1 Academy, is um, integrated and is fully a functional part of the larger Formula One entity, which means it will be enjoying a different and better level of support. Whereas the W series, even though it was integrated with the calendar, uh, was from a separate sort of production company and basis. So I I think the sponsorship guarantees will be better with this than they were with W Series. And we won't see it go away unless
3: there is some other better reason for it to. I'm actually pleased it's not being broadcast live. And I know there's a lot of disappointment. People want to see it. But there's a lot of attention and excitement about it that is a little beyond the level of driving that it's actually aimed at. And that is no offense to F1 Academy or the people featured in it, but I don't remember a clamor for people demanding to see normal F4. So I do kind of, I wonder if we've, by not being able to get the broadcast up and running, there's kind of like, uh, they've they've spared it being a circus uh, and, and people kind of gathering around, maybe for the wrong reasons, whilst it gets settled. So I'm not completely unhappy about them having a little bit of time to get bedded in, get completely comfortable as a series, and then hit us in the face with some live, polished production and formats next season
1: i simultaneously agree and disagree um again it's a half step you know these these women are being told we're putting you in this series to elevate your opportunity for sponsorships and yet it's not particularly uh, appealing yes. okay. to a sponsor if you're not getting any broadcast time obviously delivery the of these cars if it's plus plaster- your logo's plastered all over a car that's fair enough but if nobody's seeing that logo on the car you know it's not particularly appealing but also, it, it feels a little bit insulting to say that these these drivers need some extra polishing time, as in they've had polishing time throughout their whole development. I, and I, I know it wasn't meant in that manner. <laughs> I just quickly sure. defend that. I, I, would, I
3: would be saying the same about, uh, you know, men in F4. If they were f- suddenly going to say, right, you, we're going to have live access to F4 and we're going to really push it, I would also be a bit concerned because I don't know if you've ever like sat and watched support series. You know, these are kids these are 16-year-olds in these cars. And, and you know, it's, um, it's scary. I, I, I was sat at Luffield for a six-hours uh, WEC race, six hours of Silverstone. This single-seater comes flying into Luffield, into the barrier, and go, poor, that's a big hit. And then when he steps out of the car and takes his helmet off, it's a little kid. And like, it's, it's literally a little kid. And it's quite jarring to watch. So I didn't... I meant to equalise what my experience and my expectations of other series. Didn't mean it as an insult. Matt
2: well but this series is very clearly aimed at drivers who are still learning their craft and in the sense that them not being sponsored on a weekend broadcast and commented on like they are F1 i think that's a good thing from for the uh for the mental aspect of the drivers because they can make mistakes i mean let's look at gasly and red bull for example he made some mistakes the commentators seized on it, and in half a season, he was chucked out of a team. Here, they can make a mistake, deal with the team, but they don't have the extra pressure. There's a disproportionate amount of attention there we go. relative to yeah. the level of the series, because it is all women, and people do want to see this. They want to see this work, but that's a huge amount of extra pressure on a driver that's still literally trying to learn their craft.
1: Yeah. I, d- I don't know. It feels, it feels rude to almost um, kind of bubble wrap these women, you know, <laughs> yeah, by saying, well, I want to protect them from being judged. Oh, no. The, the nature of development series is that, you know, even in Formula 3 and Formula 2, there are constant mistakes. In Formula 1, there are constant mistakes. Racing is a learning curve. It's an extreme sport. You don't always get it right. However, of course, these, these girls being female, they are open to a new level of scrutiny that perhaps their male counterparts aren't open to in Formula 4 so protecting them per se from online backlash after a serious incident by you know from little boys going oh yeah no skill issue they just clearly can't drive you know they're proving us right that's a really good (laughs) men
3: impression yeah
1: thank you yes Uh, (laughs) but yeah I understand it, but also the scope for making mistakes is there for any driver in any series. And I, I really don't think we it's productive to bubble wrap these women, you know, but by exposing them to the same level of scrutiny that we expose their male counterparts to in other series. I think it's fair almost because we're saying you're deserving of your platform. You're deserving of us being critical of you because it's not a criticism on your ability as a driver. It's just a criticism of... You know, it's, it's constructive. And I think by blocking off all possible negativity, that, that speaks for itself, almost.
2: Matt? Well, I, I think what I was trying to speak of, to uh, clarify my point a little bit, is that we are preventing, or they, we are simply not implementing yet, an extra media feedback loop into the driver criticism. Obviously, the team itself... And they will subject them to the amount of criticism any driver in a series like that would be expected to be able to deal with in terms of telemetry, in terms of mistakes, and so on and so forth. But the difference would be, I can, for example, did you know, and you probably do because, like, you pay attention to these things, that the first driver ever to be kicked out of a series for violating penalty points was an F2? Most people wouldn't have even known that. That's because most people don't pay attention to F2 because it's Mm. just part of the background noise of a Formula One weekend. This being a new thing and being all women will get a lot more attention, more attention than F2 would in many weekends. So I think Spanner's point was with this soft rollout, they're getting a chance to be accustomed to working within the team without this extra media feedback loop affecting them as well. So we're really Mm -hmm. agreeing because I'm terrified of it (laughs) when you yell at me. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Antonia, you're scary, but also, Matt, like we're middle-aged men, so we are probably already have been accidentally sexist and will continue to accidentally be sexist during the 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 rest of this segment. Uh, Happy to hear, happy to correct myself, happy to learn. But the whole point of this, Antonia, is that eventually there is a desire within within F1 to see women racing in in Formula One. So I would be interested to know, you know, how likely do you think that is and what are the main barriers to stopping that happening?
1: Okay, uh, to address your first point, um, a lot of these teams in F1 Academy are Formula Two, Formula Three teams with series that feed into Formula One eventually. So a lot of the drivers are already signed in driver academies that Ah. will... Yeah, oh, okay. well, that will hopefully lead to them, um, you know, academies like Alpine, which will then lead to them progressing through the Formula Series. And yeah, maybe one day Formula One. Um, and I think that that's something that is unique to F1 Academy that maybe W Series didn't offer. Um, now, in terms of the barriers, gosh, they are numerous Not only are these women young and therefore inexperienced and therefore prone to making mistakes, as every young driver is. But of course, because they are women, there is a bit of social stigma around what they're doing and there's a lack of acceptance and there's also physical barriers because formulas two and then three and then they've all got different regulations that present different physical challenges because inherently these cars are built towards men's physiques. And that's not necessarily me saying we should make it easier and that would mean that women can then do it. That's not me saying that at all because F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports and it should stay that way. But there are some inherent ways in which the car is built that make it physically inaccessible for these girls, especially given that they're young in their development. Mm. They're not going to be as strong as a 25-year-old woman would be um, that are going to prevent them from being able to drive a Formula mm-hmm. 1 car.
3: And so, like, yeah, you're right. F1, uh, because motorsport has kind of involved evolved in a, a male-dominated environment, it's, it's not really that you have to be really strong to drive a, a car because a lot of you know, top sports cars do have power steering karting's relatively you know accessible from a strength point of view but it's never had to be a consideration because it is mostly young men in the in the prime of their their the prime thrust of their their youth and strength they have just been able to develop cars not not thinking about it at all but it is a design choice so in formula 1 you know Fernando Alonso was talking about uh, picking the strength of his wheel around how much feedback he wanted so really the steering wheel isn't something that you've got to wrestle and murder with your big man hands it's a tool to transfer the mechanical grip feeling to give information to a driver through their hands so i mean motorsport could make a choice to to make steering wheels accessible to to most humans rather than just men and a a few women in that demographic
1: well no exactly Um and Inherently, of course, biologically, yes, women aren't as strong as men. That's never going to be something that is debatable. However, there are some aspects of a Formula One car or a Formula Two and Three car where the smallest of tweaks, which would not impact car performance, would just make the car drivable for women. So the... The smallest thing, for example, in Formulas 2 and 3, you don't get to adjust the steering wheel. All of the steering wheels are the same. In Formula 1, you can adjust it to your heart's content. In Formulas 2 and 3, they're the same. What kind of adjustment? Well, in terms of the actual shape of the wheel, for example, where in Formula 2 and 3, they have quite thick wheels. And drivers like Jamie Chadwick have said, you know, in Formula 1, it's fair enough that you can customise it. But you can't in the development series, which means that a thicker wheel, which is harder for smaller hands to grip, it's it's the smallest thing, but if that could be tweaked, doesn't impact car performance, just makes things more accessible for women.
3: It, that doesn't feel like a, a big leap at all. Whereas at the moment we've almost accidentally in a position where cars are just have you know, the cars are like the water that's fit into the puddle. So, you know, a male-dominated sport is the the hole and and the the sport has just filled, you know, that hole. So it would take a mental change. And since F1 does seem willing to do it, because they haven't done F1 Academy, just for the for the hell of it, they've got a bit of time. So if you look at this crop of of basically F4 level drivers or below, because you know the current pool of women wanting to do motorsport is smaller, I don't think that's controversial. So they will have had to stretch their net further to fill the the, the F1 Academy. Please, oh, if that's insulting, please, please. I, I think I'm speaking mathematics here. Um, they've got time before that produces talent going into F3, F2, do you think they will make these moves? I know you've mentioned um, a a hip shape for seats, for example.
1: Yeah, so again, seats can be customised to the driver. They are in almost every racing series. You get your racing seat moulded to your body. Very basic. But the cockpit itself, the cockpit tub, can be quite narrow, which makes it not possible to sit in comfortably at all or effectively and in a drivable way. To women with wider hips again this is something that drivers like jamie chadwick have picked up on as barriers so these aren't theoretical things that we're plucking out of thin air and again smallest tweaks can have the biggest impact
3: so i know we're going to talk about some of the absolutely horrid comments that you got on your (laughs) tiktok video which frankly made they were an embarrassment to to men in in general but when you say accessibility they were trying to kind of interpret that as if as if almost as if we're doing women a, a favor by, by dumbing down F1, uh, at its core, there's no reason for racing to be strength dominated or purely to be some kind, it's not a workout, it's not circuit training, you know, the, it's the skill of getting a machine uh, around a corner and you can make that machine be however you want. But when you talk about, you know, accessibility, it really is just considering, you know, a broader you know, demographic of, of, of human. And this is something that, by the way, military does, uh, since we've had more women in the military, Um, Now, when things are being designed for weapons, instead of saying, okay, a third percentile male to a 10th percentile male will be able to fit in this thing. They've just expanded that to include women. And since it's been designed from the ground up, that hasn't cost any more. It hasn't made more things explode. So it just has to start in the design process. Uh, From a social point of view, uh, I haven't ever been a a little girl growing up, uh, but I do wonder if there's a core uh, base of, of young women and girls who want to get into motorsport, even once we start seeing role models, is there an inherent limit? And it's a big social question, but is, you know, is there an inherent you know, limit to the, to the enthusiasm? Obviously, I agree that everyone who wants to get into motorsport should have the opportunity to do so. But I think, are you not fighting a bit of a losing battle just by, by the will of what people will choose to do?
1: a little bit yeah i mean obviously stereotypes come from somewhere 50% of girls are probably going to look at cars and go ew but <laughs> okay. what's important is that we don't ignore the other 50% who like myself would live and breathe off of engine fumes you know it's 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 really difficult because especially in younger girls where we see developmentally there are challenges compared to male counterparts physically for example getting into formula racing as a younger woman, you're obviously not going to be as strong as sixteen as a boy is at sixteen, which means that automatically you're going to be put off at the thought of it because you think, well, there's just no point in racing a car where i can't I can't pull the strength of the g's but <laughs> yeah, my best yeah. mate Brian can
3: i mean it is a big old chip to turn around antonia,
1: oh absolutely, and I think. F1 Academy and just having female role models is such a fantastic place to start because if if there are women out there doing it, that will, of course, inspire younger girls to know that they can also do it. However, the issue is until there are enough women doing it that prove wrong all of the people who say that women can't, there's not going to be enough traction on something like this. You know, if if girls my age even, you know, in their teenage years are being told by their guy mates, the kind of things that I'm being told in my comments, which is women can't drive. Women aren't psychologically capable. Women aren't strong enough. Oh, there's no curbs. You should be all right. You know, it's that that's not going to do much. So, and I think until we have a fully integrated success rate of women racing cars and racing cars well, I don't think there's a lot that can be done to tackle it, which is why F1 Academy is so great.
3: Uh, I suppose we should tackle the, the elephant in the room, which is just the core misogyny that exists in society, which reared its head in your comments. And oh, by the way, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with like the weight of comments that you had to deal with on that video. The reason we don't have live YouTube chat is is nearly entirely because of misogynistic abuse every time we have a a woman on, it just makes our live chat a disgusting place to be. So we just went, it's easier just to turn it off and have it in our patron group. But um, with challenging misogyny, in the spirit of that, do you want to share some of those delightful comments?
1: I will start by saying, in this situation, I, as a girl, cannot win. No matter how I respond to these comments, I'm either angry and moody or I'm being walked all over. So I will say when responding to a lot of these comments, I had to physically hold myself back from absolutely violating these boys and their mothers in the comment sections. Oh boy. <laughs> because of course that would be impulsive and hysterical and goodness forbid, but no. So um, of course there are the classic misogynistic comments, you know, oh my God, shut the F up. Women don't have the mindset oh. to do it. They're too fragile. I'm looking forward to F1 cars with park sensors and illuminated makeup mirrors. F1 is an elite motorsport, not a Disney movie. And I think the idea that even, even the concept of a woman driving a car is is likened to a fairy tale. Oh, oh gosh, it just makes me feel unwell. I and would I've...
3: love to just take these comments go to their family dinners and and show these comments to their mothers because they would they would <laughs> fold they would fold if uh, if that happened uh, you know th- let's be clear you know these people are are cowards but the the thing that worries me Matt is that as soon as you do get a woman rising you know through the the junior series ranks and on the verge of formula 1 everything she does is going to get you know picked apart uh, you know if the media decide and the media are I believe, at the moment, especially in the UK, are broadly run by a bunch of raging, greedy bigots. If they decide to get their teeth... Oh, sorry, should I have not said that? Oh, no, the nah, media's brilliant. Fine. No, they're brilliant. They definitely haven't destroyed our country from the inside out with their bigoted garbage. Um, but if they get their claws into and decide they don't like you know, a, a woman who's coming through for any number of spurious reasons, you could really see them facing pressures that, that young male drivers just, just don't get.
2: Well, yeah, y- you can, and and but what what I love most is there are in almost every instance real world counterexamples to every single one of these comments. Now, uh, you are slightly younger than me, Loads. both of you. I'm but, uh, but I'm sure Spanners remembers. Do, do, do you remember my standing of Simona di Silvestro? Yeah, I do, and, and um, she got a test with Salber. Was allegedly quick, but we never saw the numbers, but couldn't pony up the sponsorship, wound up in IndyCar, where she had a podium, by the way. But do you know what her nickname was? Golem. Well, she had two. One of them was Iron Maiden, because she had a crash, burned her hand, got back in the car, and finished in the top ten. So, to me, like, what more could you ask? There's your, There's all the proof you should ever need that women are utterly capable in any circumstance of competing at that level, regardless of whatever words other people want to say. But it's a baked in societal problem. You're right about that. And I suspect it always will be to a certain extent. What was the other nickname? Uh, Swiss Miss, because oh. she was from Switzerland. Well, at least it rhymes.
1: <laughs> oh, the creativity of bigots never fails to astound me. No, uh, there's um, a really fascinating and incredible woman um, called Michelle Gatting, and she's raced in WEC. She's done all sorts with a team called Iron Maidens, um, and it's a women's team. And she actually explains within racing the level of kind of... It, it, it feels like egotism and just not wanting to be beaten by a woman. So these, these issues aren't just society-wide, but within the sport as well. Like she explains situations where she'd be coming through the pack and people not even racing in her series. So, you know, letting her through would not disadvantage them in any way. Would actually start getting defensive to stop her from overtaking them just because they saw a pink car approaching behind and then would let other people through. Again, they weren't racing against each other. They just didn't want to let a woman pass. And there is such... Oh, it's so frustrating because, like I said, there is no correct way for girls to respond to this because... Me, for example, with my audience, it's 90% male. That's just the nature of Motorsport, motorsports please. at the moment. I've got such a great female following who are so supportive and share the same sentiments as myself, but it's majority male. And I know that if I don't want to lose about 25% of those followers, I have to be very careful how I respond to things and comment on things so that I don't get labelled as a crazy feminist uh, and, you know, cast into the into the back room of tiktok never to be seen or heard from again
3: (laughs) if i if i'm having a a bad day on social media and people are being rude to me you know i'd like to often like flip them off and go oh bug off you bunch of turnips the response to you doing that would be completely different and that is you know part of this inherent um, misogyny i think we will just need to you know as a society you're gonna have to fight the same fight that you're fighting on every topic out there at at the moment um, when it comes to what is what will basically be a, a culture war
1: I completely agree and I think the likelihood of seeing women competitively racing as equals in F1 against men and not as tokens at the moment looks very low and I think the way the route to challenging that is making sure that in our younger generations we're completely eliminating these barriers that we've discussed today so you know Obviously, on my TikTok, I would say TikTok's audience generally is a very young audience. You know, you're looking at teenagers, young adults. There's the occasional, you know, your age, which is, of course, still a young adult.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) To be honest, that ship has sailed, Antonia. Don't try and rescue that one.
1: (laughs) But the comments that I was receiving on my video, the the vile comments were still coming from 12, 13-year-old boys. You know, and until we actually have young people believing that, yeah, girls can race in F1, there is actually no physical reason why they shouldn't be, and competitively doing so, I don't think we're going to be able to make any change, because it's very clear that the same attitudes that we call archaic and we call outdated are still being expressed by young people.
2: Uh, Well, young people of that age particularly love vile comments. I will just say, as a, someone who has taught kids that age, it is just a true thing. But I, I, the focus right now is on sort of a step or two or three ahead of where people start. I would love to see the money spent to, say, double the amount of female participation in karting at, at an early, early age. I think if you double female participation, you greatly increase chances mm. of seeing someone Competitive, but I also uh, pedantically, in want to mention that we're talking about modern Formula One here. There has already been a woman and women in Formula One and in other series, including IndyCar, Indy Five Hundred, having a particularly rich history of women competing and being competitive. It's modern Formula One that we're having the issue with right now, and I think while it's great to have these feeder series. Really, if we could put the attention on the very, very beginnings and encourage more uh, girls to participate at a very young age in karting, make that possible, easy, and cheap for them, so that they have no excuse not to, then you're going to see a real change.
1: I agree. And bringing it back to F1 Academy, W Series, these all women series that are designed to give women a platform, this is why that their success. Is so important and why we need to be encouraging the broadcast, encouraging people to watch it, to get involved. That's why it's so great that F1 are pouring funding into initiatives like this, because that is how we're going to see change.
3: And that's all we've got time for this week. We'll see you for the Monaco Grand Prix at 8pm live for the live stream or it will be ready for your Monday morning commute. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Do all those things. Consider being a patron. Patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast.